Hello, my name's Debbie Evans and I'm the nursing correspondent from UK Column. And today I'm so excited actually, I've been really looking forward to not an interview because I think this is going to be a meeting of minds and a relaxed conversation, but I'm delighted to be joined by Roy Lilly um, in the studio today. Now Roy, I mean, I've had to write down what Roy, what Roy has done in the past because there's so much of it. But to cut it a little bit shorter, Roy is a policy advisor. He's a, vis a visiting fellow of Imperial College. He's the founder of NHS Trusts that first became the NHS Confederation, which I know that regular viewers and listeners will know we've spoken about the NHS Confederation uh, a, a lot before. He's chaired pretty much everything, NHS trusts, he's chairing and involved with many voluntary organisations, health authorities, charities, uh, major boards, um, and I think Roy is even a magician too, to add to those skills. He's been a local councillor, a mayor, and well, is passionate like I am about the NHS. And for the record, for those of you that don't know me, um, I'm a retired state registered nurse. I used to be an old fashioned, old school ward sister. And I was a government advisor at the Department of Health for five years on the National Autism Programme Board under the chair of Sir Norman Lamb. So with that said, Roy, thank you so much for joining me. This is gonna be an absolutely fascinating conversation. Welcome to UK Column. Well, thank you, Debbie, thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to talking to a nurse. For heaven's sake, I've found a nurse. <laughs> Amongst 120,000 vacancies, I've found one. So it's good to see you. you, thank, have... you very, thank you for that very kind introduction. Somebody said the other day, I've had more chairs than Ikea. So that's probably right. But anyway, let's roll up our sleeves and get into it. Let's talk. Oh, and do you know what, Roy? Let's, because that is the one thing that I absolutely love about your approach. And, and I have to tell people that Genuinely, from the bottom of my heart, I think that if I was a matron of a hospital and uh, Roy was the hospital manager, then we would have a very different system to the one we've got now. But what I what I want to sort of look at is statistics as well, because I think statistics are very important. And I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and I know you'll correct me if I'm wrong. So the NHS spends £360,000 a minute. Uh, that's, that's a lot of money true. a minute yeah i worked that out myself and i had to get some more duracells for my calculator uh and it, it, i worked it out myself i'm proud of that and not so only that use seven thousand patients you calculated that the nhs sees every minute is that every right? 60 yeah seven thousand every 60 seconds i mean i did it because you know people people say yeah yeah the nhs is very big and it's the biggest, the fifth biggest employer in the world. Yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. But, you know, until you actually, you kind of bring it home. If you, if I said to you, you know, a billion pounds, I, well, I don't know, I have no idea how much a billion pounds is, you know, but if, but, you know, you can't pile it up on the kitchen table, you can't really imagine it, can you? But if you say, you know, 300,000 pounds a minute to 7,000 people, you think, blimey, this is a big organization. It needs proper organization. And it needs, you know, a lot of people to run it. So, yeah, I, I, I dreamed that I, I did actually calculate those, uh, those two figures. I think I used them in an article that I wrote recently. Yeah. Yeah, you did. But you know, Roy, we're of a similar generation. I'm as passionate about the NHS as you are. I trained in it. 
My children were born in the NHS. The NHS has saved the lives of more than one of my relatives. So I'm as passionate about it as you. But back in my day, it was an honour. You know, if you got accepted as a student nurse in a London teaching hospital, it was a great honour. And we yeah. had pride in our uniform. And we go back to hospitals where we would walk in with a bunch of grapes, a bunch of flowers, the windows would be open and there would be a chair by the side of the bed for patients, relatives to sit in. What has gone wrong? We have now got 7 million on the waiting list, NHS in collapse, nurses leaving in their droves. What, what, what are we coming to? How have well, we become this? I, I mean, I agree. Uh, I mean, I, I was actually born before the NHS. And my big worry is that I'll die after it's gone. And, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it, it, it's in a very difficult place. OK, why is it in this situation? Well, we've got to wind the clock back to the world banking crisis. Before that, we'd had a, a Labour government, uh, Andy Burnham and Gordon Brown to put up a lot of money into the NHS. They'd inherited it from the John Major years. It, it had been run down. Um, Brown put in a, a huge amount of money. They've got the, they stabilized um, nursing salaries. They got the waiting list down to almost nothing. Andy Burnham, I remember standing up in the House of, House of Commons on a Wednesday afternoon on a health question saying waiting lists are down to almost nothing. And he was right. I mean, my mum at that time, she needed her cataracts done. She got uh, she got diagnosed as needing a cataract done. There were one was done the next week, and the, the other one was done the week after. You know, so it, it that it was money talks really in those days. Then along came the World Banking crisis, when it took everybody by surprise. And um, you know, this is not not a not, this is not a, a a program about economics. But uh, following the World Banking crisis, um, the NHS, well, the whole of the public sector took a hit. Um, local local government had their budgets cut by about 40 percent. Uh, George Osborne became the uh, chancellor and we had a period of austerity. Now, the NHS to survive financially, uh, the historic uplift it needs since the 5th of July on, in 1948 when it was born to today, the average uplift it needs is just under 4 percent. If you give it just under 4 percent, 3.8 percent, 3.9 percent a year uplift, it can tick along. It's a struggle, but it can tick along. In the 10 years after the world banking crisis, the NHS had pretty much flatline funding, 0.1%, 0.2, 0.9. So we had a very prolonged period of flatline funding. During that period, we didn't train enough nurses, train enough doctors, build enough hospitals, refurbish enough hospitals, re, 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 rebuild stuff. We didn't invest in enough kit. So we had this very fallow period. Then, of course, along came COVID. And we forget, because COVID's given us all a sort of collective amnesia, we forget that we went into COVID with record numbers of people on the waiting list. 4.5 million before COVID were on the waiting list, record high. And we had 40,000 nursing vacancies, we think, because at that time, the vacancies weren't collected centrally. So we only estimated the number of vacancies by looking at the number of adverts. There were four vacancies, which, I mean, you know, you'd laugh if it wasn't so, so serious. But so we had about 40,000 vacancies, four and a half million people on the waiting list. Along comes COVID, bosh, everything is knocked sideways. 
all the budgets got screwed. The NHS was given a hell of a lot of money to cope with PPE and all the rest of it. And we come out the other side of COVID. I mean, I'm not sure we're out of COVID yet, but on the other side of COVID, we've come through it with the NHS in a really poor state because we got exhausted staff. 40,000 nurses left last year before retirement. 40,000, about 30,000 look like they're going to leave this year before retirement. So the staff are, are knackered. Um, they can't see an end to it. The, the waiting lists have virtually doubled. They say there's over 7 million. I think it's probably closer to 10. And, and I think a lot of staff are just saying, I can't, you know what, I can't do this anymore. And then on top of that, you've got the, the pay situation as well with inflation running right. And so really, I think, so, yeah, I'm sorry to give you a rather long answer, but you know, why are we in this situation? We had 10 years of flatline funding we haven't invested in the health service. We have fewer beds per head of population than any other comparable OECD country, fewer nurses per head of population, fewer doctors, fewer allied health professionals. And so we just simply don't have the capacity. That's why now we've got a um, huge waiting list and we've got what's going to look like it'd be a horrendous flu season. COVID is on the resurgence again. Um, we've got GPs who are swamped. People, are, people don't work in primary care. So really the legacy, I, the sky is dark with the chickens coming home to roost. That's the answer. Well, I think um, I can't argue with anything that you've said there, uh, Roy, at all. My big question, I think, would be that from some of the experiences that I'm hearing from colleagues that are leaving the NHS in their droves, it's not just because they're exhausted um, over COVID, it's because they can't sleep at night because they're being asked to do things that they're not feeling safe or confident in doing. Debbie, that's a really important point because the nurses are um, tomorrow, um, I'm not sure when this is going to be broadcast, but we're recording this on the 24th of November at about quarter past two in the afternoon. I can tell you that I do know that the nurses tomorrow on Friday will be announcing their strike dates um, for December. And I mean, nobody wants to see the nurses going on strike. It's a horrendous moral and ethical dilemma for everybody. But if you talk to nurses, yes, they, you know, they, they want their pay sorted out. But a lot of them are saying exactly what you said. And as an ex-nurse, you will know this is right, that they are concerned that they're, they're practicing dangerously. They're not practicing safely. Then they're concerned that they can't do the job properly because there's just not, of, not enough of them. I mean, we're seeing, I mean, you, you will know this, and I, I, I'm sure we're, we're talking to an educated uh, listenership here, that, you know, hospital wards have bays in them, and, and they have four people on one side and four on the other. So you have roughly eight bed bays on a ward. Now, a lot of wards now are doing eight plus one, where they put an extra bed in the middle down against the window. And so you're getting, you're getting you know, a qualified nurse who's, who's Often nurses tell me that they're looking after two bays with a couple of healthcare assistants, and now they're getting they're getting bay plus one. One nurse told me it was it was bay plus two because they had a bed next to the nursing station in the corridor. I mean, you can't. I mean, what can you say? I mean, you can't you can't be critical of that. People have got to go somewhere. But you can. The point I wanted to make was you're absolutely right. A lot of the concern that nurses have is their ability to practice safely 
and that's you know I, I don't know what the answer to that is but I mean we're a long way off getting an answer I'm, I'm really grateful that you said that because um, I would echo it and I would say that if I was in a clinical setting now within the NHS I would be feeling extremely comfortable and you know nurses when when I trained Roy and you'll remember this you know we trained we had very actually it's a good point because the first hospital that I was ever ever in was was St Bartholomew's Hospital where they had the crisp aprons and the hats and everyone was very yeah. proud of their uniforms. And you had the Nightingale Ward, didn't you, with the beds down each side? Yeah, and we had windows open and and doors open and fresh air yeah. coming through and day rooms and and all of this. And then we went to the National Uniform, which was I was very disappointed in. I trained at the Royal Free, and it looked uh, it, it it was just a blue and white check. But we were still proud of our uniforms and our uniforms were laundered in the hospital laundry. All of this went on. So, you know, the NHS back then with nursing was completely different because we trained differently. Now, yes. you don't know when you go on a ward if you're speaking to um, somebody that's collecting the menus or whether it's the ward sister or whether we even call them ward sisters anymore because everyone seems to be called managers. And the problem is, is that the nurses, I, I feel, aren't getting the practical training and the quality of training that we got. Because now with the advent of Project 2000, many nurses are graduate nurses. They come in after 18 months of being in uni and decide that maybe it's not for them. And the basic nursing skills that we were taught you know, mouth care, making beds, bed baths, all the basic nursing care, touching patients, taking their pulse, all of that's gone. There is a huge debate over uh, nurse training. I mean, there's one, one group that say, you know, nurses uh, are, are working now in a very complicated environment. Uh, they need to know a lot more than they did perhaps when uh, you were nursing in terms of the technical issues and machinery and stuff like that. Uh, drug administration and things like that. And nurses need that degree education. They should be educated at least as well as everybody else. And everybody seems to have a degree these days. Um, and it's it's important. And, you know, there is a big slug of their, of their training that is actually done on the ward. On the other hand, there are people who say, I think that with an equally valid argument that say, actually, does a nurse have to have a degree, really? I mean, if they want to get a degree, that's fine. Does it, you know, the basics of nursing, which you've just touched on, really haven't changed since, since Florence Nightingale. I mean, you know, the basics are the basics and they've got to be done and they should be done properly with care and compassion and skill. And it's a, it is, it's a very difficult thing. And I was actually very pleased to see that the, the nurse training uh, also embraced an apprentice nursing uh, training where people earn while they learn. So they're actually, um, when they're on the wards learning, instead of it being a three-year course, it's a four-year course because it can lead to a degree over a longer period. So it kind of satisfies the people who, who say every nurse has to have a degree. But, but I, don't, I honestly don't think that, that, that it's sustainable because I think nurses now leave with a huge amount of debt. And when you look at the amount that nurses pay, then uh, the nurses get paid. I mean, I'm not saying that they're, they're, you know, some nurses do very well and quite right too, but they're never going to pay that debt off, really. 
Uh, and it's a big disincentive, I think, to going to university to be saddled with a whole load of debt. And the other interesting thing is this, there's two figures here for you. One in three nurses on university, and sorry, one in five nurses on a university course, one in five don't complete the course. One in five don't complete the course. When they're qualified, one in three leave. Now that says something about how we recruit people into that training environment. And you know, it, it, it's kind of worrying really at a time when you know, we know that we're not recruiting enough nurses and they're just not staying. Ah, but as you very rightly pointed out to me when we've spoken on the phone, Roy, um, all of our experienced, highly qualified nurses, and, and I do pride myself on my NHS training. My NHS training mm. was second to none. It really was. But as you highlighted, we're flying in nurses. We've got transitional courses now for nurses that are coming in from Africa and Asia. And tell us your thoughts on what the government has seemed to have planned or concocted with regards to Nepal and the Nepalese well, nurses that are coming in. This whole Nepali thing, um, I was I was a gobsmack really. Um, we're bringing in nurses from Nepal. Now, where you can recruit nurses from overseas is is actually. Um, it comes under the sort of bailiwick of the World Health Organization because the World Health, or World Health Organization, WHO, are, are saying there are certain countries that we should not recruit from. And those are countries that have got a pretty impoverished healthcare systems and taking staff away is not a good idea because it depletes the, their, their, their home services. Now, Nepal is on what the WHO call their red list. Their red list are a number of countries where they say, do not recruit from these countries. Now, Nepal is on that list. You should not recruit nurses from Nepal. But there are two loopholes. One, if a nurse in Nepal comes here and wants to nurse, you can't stop her. And the other red, this is the other loophole, which is, which is so irritating. If there is a government-to-government -government agreement, so if Her Majesty's government here, or His Majesty's government here, do a deal with the government of Nepal to bring in nurses, that's okay, because the Nepal government have agreed it. And there is an agreement between His Majesty's government here and the Nepali government to bring in 10,000 nurses. Now, when I looked into this, I thought this is bonkers because I'm, I'm pretty sure that Nepal doesn't recruit 10,000 more nurses than it actually needs. And so I got on, you know, good old Google. <laughs> what happened before Google? And so we got on good old Google and I read some of the Nepal newspaper because they published it in English language and, and there's a Google translator. And I discovered from reading the Nepali newspapers that there are politicians in Nepal who are saying, guess what? Why are we sending our nurses to England? Because we haven't got enough nurses here. And of course, the big problem in Nepal is, is the geography. And so primary care is a big thing in Nepal. I mean, people travel miles to get into a hospital. But, but the big thing is primary care. And the big component of primary care is, as you all know, nursing. And so we've got this government to government 
agreement. So then I thought, well, I'm not going to let this go. I want to know what's in the agreement. So I did a Freedom of Information Act query. And after a bit of a palaver, I got to see the agreement. And the agreement just says, this is an agreement between her, His Majesty's government and the Nepali government to bring nurses here for experience and training. End of. That's it. I mean, it's bonkers that the Nepali government are prepared to let 10,000 of their nurses come here. And I think it's totally, completely bloody immoral for us to pretend that they're coming here for training because they're not. They're coming trained already because they're trained to UK standards. They use the same curriculum. They're coming here to backfill the, the gaps. And, and I kind of, I sort of get it from the department's point of view in that we, because we had this 10-year flatline funding, we didn't train enough nurses. We lost, if you look at 10 years, we lost, lost two cohorts of nurses effectively coming in because it takes you know, three years to train a nurse and about five years before they're really experienced and they're you know, up and running and doing their thing. So you can't ring Amazon and get a box of nurses delivered. I understand the dichotomy that the government has in that our service is falling apart. We've got to get some nurses from somewhere, but not Nepal. And they're coming in from India as well. And good luck. You know, it's lovely to see you and thank you for coming. But again, if you read the Indian press, the Indian government is concerned and starting to get concerned that their nurses are disappearing. They're not just disappearing uh, to come here. They're, they're disappearing to go into all kinds of places. Uh, and if you look at you know, the Far East, the Philippines, the nurses, they do actually recruit more nurses, train more nurses than they need in the Philippines, knowing that they will go abroad and they will go overseas and, re and send money back home to their families. That's been going on for years. But they're not, they're not coming here now in the numbers that they used to. Why is that? Because they're very well trained, they speak good English, and they can work anywhere they want. They can work in America and get paid nearly double what you get paid here. They can work in Australia, they can work in South Africa, they work in any English-speaking country. Most of them have sunshine and we don't, and most of them pay more than we don't. So this whole idea of bringing people in from overseas, I just think is just a bonkers idea. Well, I agree. But you know what I would say is that where we've had this fallow time in training nurses, I accept that we haven't trained enough nurses. You do have, or not you personally, but the United Kingdom has an army of nurses my age and a little bit younger and maybe a little bit older that trained in the 70s and the 80s who are still of pretty good health, able-bodied. And there's an army of us, Roy, and we won't go back. It's just hopelessly clunky and horrible. I, I, I've had, I must have had 50 letters from nurses who read my stuff and they say, you know, and I've said, you know, about return to nursing, they say, Roy, you should try it. It's just horrible. And it's just clunky. And the other thing is this, the shift patterns now in hospital, I mean, when you were nursing, I think you probably did three weeks early shift, three weeks late shift, and three weeks night shift. You did a kind of a rotational thing. Uh, and you could elect to do nights all the time if you wanted to. Now, people do three days, 12 hours back to back. Now, you know, with the greatest respect to, to nurses who are a bit older and are fit, and very capable nurses, not many of them actually want to work like that. And it's the lack of flexibility in rostering which is killing that off. 
I mean, it seems to me if I was running a hospital, I, I would try and find some kind of way of rostering nurses. Firstly, when I ran my hospital a long time ago now, I let the nurses self roster. They decided themselves on the wards how they wanted to do it. The ward sisters did self rostering. That was pretty unusual in those days. Uh, but they don't do that now. It's all done centrally with a big piece of software. But the lack of flexibility in rostering is one of the big things that's killing off nursing as a profession because people won't come back to the 12 hour back to back. It's not fair, it's not reasonable, to, particularly to ask older nurses to do that. But there, there must be a thousand jobs that, that older, mature, experienced nurses can do and they can bring their experience back to work. But we just make it so difficult but also i think not just making it difficult because it is ridiculously difficult but it's now that we we feel i feel as a nurse i would be entering a system that i'm seeing as i i can't believe that i'm even saying this word roy but it's almost corrupt i'm seeing a system which i'd be asked to be um practicing in good clinical practice i would not be able to do what i feel would be safe practice because I feel that I would have pressure from people higher than me to do things that I might not not want to do. And this is what we're seeing in the NHS, not just within patient groups, but within staff groups. And I'm really worried because, you know, the NHS was always the jewel in our crown, always. But my question is, if it was such a jewel, why have we become so dependent now on a system that clearly isn't working and moving fast forward, going fast forward, because we could talk forever about the good old days. And Roy, you would go into a hospital, a different entrance, you would speak to the staff, you would know them by name, you would ask them, what would you like me to do with for you today? You would speak to them. That isn't happening. If you and I were running a hospital, it would be a very different hospital, as I've said before, because I, when I was running a, a ward, I knew all my patients every single one of them. I knew all my nurses. I did the rota. I was as flexible as I could be with nurses, making sure that they had time off when they wanted time off. We all had equal distribution at Christmas. We had the consultant coming in and carving the turkey at Christmas. We'd put our capes on inside out and we'd sing carols to the patients. So when we look at where we're going fast forward into this data and to this software and i'm seeing now nurses scanning patients with ipads doctors collecting data all the time data data driven we're losing time on that clinical practice and when i look at government and i look at i mean we could go back to even jeremy hunt and i'm sure we will but at the moment, we've got Steve Barclay, who, in my opinion, is completely wet behind the ears. He's a solicitor. He's got absolutely no health training whatsoever. And I just see that he's got his a huge portfolio, his back to the wall. He's completely misjudged the Royal College of Nurses. Now we're going to see an exodus of nurses striking, of which I personally would never have done. Never. You would never see me on a picket line. That's my personal um, opinion when it comes to, to nursing. But now the government, Steve Barclay, is going to have to fork out thousands and thousands of pounds to fill the gaps that the nurses going on strike are going to be making with agency staff. So what are we going to do about where we're going from government and from the ministerial portfolio 
when clearly we've got somebody in charge that hasn't got a Scooby-Doo? Or am I being unfair on Steve Barclay? No, I, I don't think you are. I mean, it's, it's the political system, isn't it? I'm on my 23rd Secretary of State for Health. Uh, I came into the NHS in my mid-20s, and I'm in my mid-70s now. So in that 50-year period, there have been 23 Secretaries of State, which is like one every two years almost, isn't it? So, and, and there's been one every, <laughs> one every five minutes in the last month. But it, and I, you know, Barclay hasn't got a clue. Uh, and and he, of course, he's, he's landed. That, I mean, he's got that portfolio now at what? Record waiting list, record staff vacancies. And now he's got a strike to sort out. I mean, my view is he's only got one job at the moment. That is to sort out the strike because that's going to be a catastrophe. What is he going to do about the strike? Well, he's going to have to talk. All disputes end up in talking in the end. It doesn't matter whether you have a row with your neighbour, with your wife uh, or with your employer or with another country. Yeah, everything ends in discussion. You have to talk. So, I mean, it's no good him saying, oh, well, my door is always open. I mean, that's usually a sign of someone saying it's not really open. You know, I don't want to talk to you. So he's got to, he's got to in some way or other, sit down and talk to the nurses. Now, I mean, on the one hand, we're not stupid. All of us understand what a mess the, um, the economy is in, the fragile nature of the economy, uh, and, the, and the difficulties that the economy is facing. We can attribute blame to that and we can go down a whole rabbit hole with that, but we are where we are, so let's deal with it where we are. Now, the RCN, uh, who are a very accomplished organization, aren't stupid, and they understand that the economy is in a bad shape and everybody wants a pay rise. It seems to me that this will end. If I was the Secretary of State, I would get the, the, the nurses in and get the RCN, the leaders in, and I'd say, look, I can't give you 17%, which is what they want. They want 5% above inflation, and inflation's 10, maybe 11%. So it's, it, it, you know, it's 17, about 17%. I can't give you 17%. You've had 4.5 uh, this year. I'll give you an extra 1.5. I'll bring, I'll bring the 4.5 up to 6% this year, and I'll give you 6% next year. I can't, I have no more cash. I can't do anything else. What I can do is I can persuade the Treasury to forgive NHS university debt so we could wipe off all the university debt. I could do a deal with the Department of Transport so that all nurses could travel on public transport free. I could send out guidance so that no nurses will be charged for parking in their hospital. I could insist that every hospital had 24-7 hot food in a canteen. I could insist that every hospital had flexible rotaring software. And I could insist that every trust had a creche, because at the moment, childcare costs are wiping out what band four and five nurses are earning to look after their kids. So I would come forward with a package like that, and I'd say to the RCN, can't do your top line number. I can build up to it over a couple of years, maybe three years. I could do, I could do maybe six percent this year, six percent next year, and maybe nine percent the year after, knowing full well that the Tories won't be in power 
then because it's inconceivable they'll win the next election. So that will pass the problem on to Labour to sort that out. And in the meantime, there's a lot of low cost, high profile, high impact things I could do to make uh, the nurses' employment conditions better. So that will be my approach. I think, um, like I said before, I think if you and I were running a hospital, it would be a very different place. Um, but going back to how we can save money in the NHS, and um, it would be very helpful, I think, for staff not to be as overwhelmed with sick patients as we've got at the moment. But despite the fact that the official figure is a 7 million waiting list, we are testing healthy people. And this testing of healthy people is not just overwhelming the health system, this early early diagnostic cancer screening, for example, where everybody's getting a little envelope coming through their door with, you know, put a, a, a sample of poo in a pot and send it off and we'll tell you if you've got early stage cancer. Well, since when, when we've got all of these sick people that we need to help, since when were we testing healthy people in order to say to them oh sorry you're sick you'll just have to be seven million and one on the waiting list so we seem to be driving the agenda forward for the uk to become this global science we've got an nhs with unique data we've got a unique system and sometimes i have to ask myself well if the nhs is such an amazing system why hasn't any other country rolled it out? Because the NHS, to what I remember, has now become international. It's become an international organisation. So I can see that there are savings, plenty of savings that can be made. But what I think is interesting is from a nursing perspective, and I know a lot of my colleagues will be saying the same, too many managers in the NHS. There's not enough um, people on, on at the coalface, if you like. There's too many managers in 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 position however listening to your podcast and i would actually recommend lots of people to go and listen because roy's podcasts are only about five or minutes five or six minutes long and you can listen to them and uh they're very entertaining and uh very, very i learn a lot from them roy but you surprised me when you said that only two percent actually of the nhs workforce is management because i thought it was much higher no, we're one of the most undermanaged healthcare systems in the world. Um, uh, it, about 2% of the workforce, and in terms of actual management, it's 1.5. If you look at France, 4% of their workforce is management. If you look in America, it's uh, nearly 8%. So, no, we're, if anything, we're, we're undermanaged. Uh, and for about, for about every £100 the NHS spends, £2 is spent on when we say management, uh, that two quid includes administration as well. And, you know, as I come back to the point that we made a moment or two ago, you know, the NHS spends over £300,000 a minute and looks after 7,000 people every 60 seconds. That takes a bit of organising. You know, you do need people to do that. And I think you're right about, the, you know, the screening thing. But the important thing is, I mean, that, I don't know if you, let's talk for a moment about data. I mean. There is no question about it that that data does tell us a lot of, of what the future is likely to hold. Now, for example, um, I mean, my data on its own is useless. My data, maybe compared to your data, you know, might have some something it can tell us. Um, but all our data together 
tells us such a lot. And I, in my own situation, for example, I've got osteoporosis in the bottom of my of my spine. My God, I've got a crumbling back. Now, there's not much I can really do about that. Uh, there's vertebrae plasty and bits and pieces that I can have done, and I, you know, probably I'll go down that road eventually. But the thing is, you see, my mum had osteoporosis, and her mum had osteoporosis, and with the amount of skills that we've got now, it would have been perfectly possible when I was in my teens to say, you know what, Roy, you're going to have to look after your bone density because as you get older, if you're not, you're going to end up like your mum. Of course, no one said that to me and I didn't even think about it. But, you know, it's not just me. There are loads of people who have a genetic disposition towards something or the data would say, watch out, this is likely to happen. And so I think in terms of the NHS budget and saving money. I mean, it's very difficult to save money. Yes, you can go around turning off the lights and you can use both sides of a piece of A4 and all that. You know, we've done all that. But when you, you have to get to the point when you say, what do we do to stop people getting sick in the first place? And the interesting thing is the World Health Organization tell us that 60% of presentations into the healthcare systems are lifestyle related 60 percent lifestyle related now i think that's really interesting and if we're going to do something about demand in the nhs you know q theory isn't going to solve our problems of waiting we've got to stop people getting sick in the first place you know uh roy there's so much to unpack there i think i mean i'm hoping i'm hoping very much that you'll agree to come back uh to uk column and talk to us again because the world health organization is a whole different subjects and I would really love to ex to be able to explore that with you because I, I do have a few reservations well more than a few reservations about the World Health Organization. Well, I, yeah, I, I mean just let, let me say quickly I'm not to totally enthralled to the World Health Organization and I've now I've referred to them twice now in what's happened and I do understand that there's the reservations about the politics behind it. Um, Mr Tedros of course would argue with that and I think Donald Trump pulled America out didn't he? Uh, went during his presidency and Biden took him back in. Um, and it's not without controversy. Of course, I accept that. But I think, you know, if you what what I think they are good at is collating numbers. And if you if you move away from their policy and just look at the numbers, I think they do have some messages for us. See, Roy, when I look at um, we, I will come back to the WHO, I'm hoping on another on another interview that we can do, right. because it good, really yeah. is a big subject. But we'll do that. Moving back to the NHS with a with a kind of caveat with the WHO too. It just seems that the NHS has become very authoritarian. It's become a law unto itself. We fused it now. I mean, we can go into the whole makings of Public Health England and et cetera, but we fused it with the UK HSA. Um, you know, we've got health and security that have been fused. We've got security guards at doors now. And we've got the NHS giving out a completely different message to one that the government are giving out. And the example that I'd give you on that and the question that I'd like to ask you with regarding it, because a lot of our viewers and our listeners are asking the same question, is that currently at the moment, we don't have any COVID-19 restrictions. Um, there are none. The government are making no recommendations. We haven't had any updates from Professor Christopher Whitty. So it's business as usual, but it's not in the NHS. When I ring my GP, 
I get a long-winded message telling me that if I've got symptoms of COVID, I'm not to come to the surgery. But to be honest with you, if I had symptoms of a cold or anything like that, I wouldn't generally go to someone that was vulnerable or to a surgery. But that's common sense. But I'm getting, you know, you have to wear a mask. You have to stay your distance. I'm seeing a report today that's come out to say that Harrogate's NHS trusts are now making visitors to all areas within their hospitals to wear masks, to go around one-way systems, to keep social distancing. Now, a lot of the public and a lot of the patients are getting very upset about this. And we're seeing that there are, there are maybe issues going on between, you know, altercations taking place where people are becoming quite aggressive about it. Like, well, why are the NHS and why are the GP surgeries throwing out all of these mandates that haven't come from government. So have, has the NHS become a, a law unto itself? No, I don't, I don't think it is. I, I, but I think there's a lot of anxiety around what to do. And you're, you're right to point out that there is no central guidance uh, around where we are with COVID at the moment. And I, I saw the same, um, in fact, when you, were, when you were setting that question up, I was going to talk about Harrogate in the in, in the. And, but you beat me to it. You are right. And, it's, and it really is very difficult. I mean, the problem is that COVID, as far as hospitals are concerned, hasn't gone away. First of all, it's depleting staff. There, there, there is a huge amount of staff sickness. I, I, I mean, it's something like uh, 40,000 staff are, are off sick with, uh, with COVID or something at the moment. I mean, so it's a big problem. And, and y yourself, you will know in terms of infection control, Trying to run a hospital with COVID is a nightmare because effectively you've got to run two hospitals. You've got to have the COVID bit and then you've got to have all the rest of it. Now, the staff that are in the COVID bit can't work in the non-COVID bit. If you want meals delivered into the COVID bit, it's a whole separate thing. If you want repairs, if you want machines sorted out, if you want cleaning, the whole thing has to be done within a very strict infection control regime and it's a nightmare for the hospital. Now, if they're seeing the increase in the local areas, and this is the this is the problem, really. We don't know what the local R numbers are, and I imagine in the areas where they are starting to introduce restrictions in their hospitals, which they're entitled to do, um, I think we'll probably see that the R numbers are going up. And when the R numbers are going up, when your staff is depleted because they're off sick with COVID, what do you do? All you can do is to rely on the cooperation of the public and say, look, in everybody's interest, please do this. And of course, some people get very stroppy and some people won't do it. And that's where, you know, the security staff came in. I mean, if we're talking about, you know, our early days in the NHS and the good old days. Nobody ever argued with a nurse. Nobody ever took on a ward sister. And if matron turned up, everybody froze. But now, you know, in A and E, I'm speaking to you from my flat in London. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in the East End of London, and the Homerton down the road. There are regular fights in A and E, and they got security in there like it was Fort Knox. So, I mean, public behaviour doesn't help either. But it, coming back to the infection control thing, I think it's really difficult in the absence of national guidance. If trusts suddenly say the numbers are going south here. And we need, we need to for you to cooperate with infection control. Please do it. If they are presented in isolation, 
as as they are at the moment without the support of government then i just i do think it pushes them out on a limb and it's a very unenviable position to be in no roy that's um opened up so much for me because infection control and um i can remember sister picton i remember her very very well because if i was ever seen outside of the hospital in indoor uniform i was hauled off and i was told off if i was yeah. outside in an indoor hat um that was a no-no too my uniforms yeah. were not allowed to be sent to um that they were i couldn't wash them myself they had to be sent to the hospital laundry they had to be boiled infection control we had norovirus we had flu in 2018 we had 50,000 excess flu deaths so we've had these infections going for a very long time my own hospital the royal free at the beginning we had coppets wood which was an infectious disease hospital out in the middle of nowhere and the lassa fevers and the green monkey diseases and the ebolas would all go there now we've got these massive great big concrete buildings you can't open the windows everyone's trapped inside it's a complete petri dish and infection control seems to have been not just gone out of the window but been sealed within the building if you like so when it comes to infection control, I think we don't have any because I'm seeing during the whole COVID-19, I was seeing nurses out in uniforms. I wasn't seeing um, major pride being taken in uniforms. People were wearing any old shoes and some were wearing pop socks. Um, some were wearing cardigans over the uniform. They'd come in and out of the hospital. There wasn't any infection control going on there. We managed in our day, sometimes we did have to close down a ward or two. Sometimes we did have to transfer patients to another isolation area. But infection control, as I remember it, when it worked, seems to have gone. So why are we not learning from what we were doing in the past? Maybe we should be, instead of propelling ourselves forward to all of this data and hospital at home and early diagnostics for cancer and all this new artificial intelligence, Maybe we should just stop for a minute and just row back a little bit so that the people that are wanting to transform this international organization, which is now the NHS, maybe we can just row back a little bit because I don't think we're ready for it. You know, I'm speaking to elderly people, vulnerable people who are being told they've got to be hospital at home, virtual wards where they're being cared for by um, their iPad or their smart device, they don't know how to use it. They don't know how to monitor it. They don't know where their data's going. It's going on some cloud. What if it rains? What if the cloud gets blown away? I mean, you know, this technology, are we ready for it? Is the NHS ready for it? I don't, well, I'm not, I'm not sure it is. No, I mean, the, the hospital at home has been really forced on uh on the nhs simply because of the pressure on beds they can't discharge and the reason they can't discharge is because social care is in a worse state than the nhs the, the hospital at home thing i mean it, it does there's no question about it with the use of of technology and with the right patients it can stop a lot of the inconvenience for patients and their families around admissions and risk of admissions cross infection all the rest of it. my concern is is probably what your concern is that as a blanket policy of getting people home using the supported by technology you often get people who really can't cope with it 
or, or whose family can't cope with it or are at the margins of being able to cope with it. And I think, you know, in many cases, a disaster waiting to happen. And I, I ran, because um, uh, I'm involved with the Institute of Health uh, Healthcare Management, as you know, the IHM, and uh, I ran a, a round table very early on in the virtual ward uh, program. And I got some people who had actually been running virtual wards for other reasons. They've been, I think they were post-operative cancer treatment patients and renal patients, things like that, supporting them from home. And the message that came from that round table was, this is not a cheap option. It requires highly skilled people to make it work and to make the decisions. And you've got to have kit that works. So it, none of that to me, added up as a use as a useful universal blanket policy for just getting people home safely i don't think it is and i and i'm and i rather i kind of suspect that a lot of the people that have tried it are having second thoughts about it because you you can't leave it to to inexperienced people i mean you can i think you you can look after people from home if you've got the experience of dealing with people and having a sense of that person, that person's circumstances and how they present, how they respond, how they're talking, how they're feeling. But you need experience to do that. And, and an iPad is no substitute for that. No, it, it really isn't. And it takes me back to touch. You know, nurses need to touch yeah. patients. Doctors yeah. need to touch patients. I can look at a uh, I can look at a, a telemetry screen. I can look at an oximeter and see that somebody's blood saturation is 99% and that their pulse is, I don't know, 78. But I need to hold their wrist. I need to take their blood pressure. I need to send yeah. their blood off for a blood oxygen. I can't rely on all of this digitization. But what worries me, Roy, and this is a really big question because I'll give you a little example. Apparently, there's a Tesco store in London in Chancery Lane. And apparently you can't get into it unless you've got the Tesco app. Unless, you know, unless you show your app, you're not allowed entry for whatever reason. What worries me is this digitalization of the NHS in that the front door of the NHS is going to require an NHS pass. Now, I personally, I don't. I don't want to use, I don't use a smartphone really. I'm not very tech um, savvy. I don't want to use an app. At the same time, I'm actually now, as a trained nurse within the NHS, I actually don't want to use the NHS myself, Roy. I mean, I'm, I'm worried about me using the NHS, about me or one of my family needing to use the NHS. Um, perhaps you could call it scared, if you like, of the NHS and I say that I say that and I'm troubled because I never ever thought that I would say in a million years that I'm actually scared of the NHS but I am and I'm scared of what's coming up because if you look at the long-term plan which of course Theresa May brought in um, you can see that we're looking at possibly personal budgets being rolled in for the NHS we're looking at a two-tiered system for the NHS we're looking at even lengthier waiting lists, probably up to 15 million, 13 million in a couple of years' time. And we've already seen that Rishi Sunak, I think in The Telegraph, there was an article to say that many NHS staff were basically going to be replaced by robots 
and um, machine learning. And so my question number one, I think, is are we, have, are we going to be reliant on an NHS app and to get into the NHS to access it? And if we don't want to access it, how can we opt out it and, and literally get our medical records and our data and say, thank you very much, but we'd rather not avail ourselves of it. You know, that's where I'm, I'm frightened that we're coming to. What's your reaction on that, Roy? Well, I mean, it's, it's a horrible thought that, that we'll end up going down uh, any of that road. It's, I mean, it's horrifying. And, you know, there's a lot in, in what you've said. I mean, it, it's interesting, the Tesco's that you're talking about, Chancery Lane, there's another one. Um, I'm quite near Canary Wharf. There's an Amazon store here, an Amazon grocery store. They've got the same thing. And you have the app and you turn the app on when you walk into the shop. You scan everything that you buy and walk out. There's no checkout. It just takes the money straight out of your bank account. So that's, that's what that's about. Now, the NHS app, of course, I mean, I have the NHS app. It, a lot of people find it very useful if you've got... Um, uh, a long-term condition and you've got prescriptions that you want renewed you can use the app it's very simple get in touch with your doctor and the, you say i'm running out whatever my tablets are can i have some more and um as, you know subject to any kind of medication review that's required they they send the prescription straight off to um the uh, your pharmacy of your choice and you go in the next day and there it is waiting for you so that's an example i think of, of technology having some benefit I think if we go beyond that, accessing our health records, I mean, first, for me, access to my health records, I'm not that bothered. I don't know what I'd do with them if I had, to be honest. But I mean, some people, they want to have their own health records. That's fine. And, and up to a point, you can do that now. You can ask your summary health record to be put on the NHS app so you can see it and it is there for you. Where I, th I think the bigger question here is where do we go with all these technologies? And there's no question. I mean, I always remember uh, in the days when I used to plod around doing lectures and, and lunchtime lectures in, in medical education centers, I had a slide that always used to wind the doctors up. And it was a, and it was a, um, a cutting from the Times newspaper of 18 something or other. And uh, in short, it was the BMA, the good old BMA were around in those days. They, they said that the stethoscope was not something that doctors would ever want to use as it came between the doctor and the patient. And so they didn't want to use the stethoscope because it was a new piece of technology, which always made me laugh. I think the thing is that, you know, the technology will have its place. I mean, if you look at diagnostics now, if you know, I mean, MRI scans, I mean, I don't know really where I'd have been without, with the problems that I have without MRI scans, which have made a huge difference to me. And if you look at, um, uh, you know, pregnant mums, you know, you could, well, we scan mums now, we can see their babies and we look and look out for problems. I mean, and blood tests now, near patient testing, which can be done in GP surgeries. There's so much that technology can offer. But I think you are right in the, the technology and i guess the times newspaper was right in 18 whatever it is it is important that the technologies don't come between the patient and the clinician i think it's got to be alongside both it, it's something that both can turn to but you but you're right it mustn't come between them. and i think to the um 
the idea that maybe people want to get their medical records. I think a lot of people want to get their medical records because they don't trust who the NHS is sharing them with. And again, that hopefully is going to be another conversation, Roy, um, where we yeah. maybe talk about Palantir and the uh, intervention of, of all of this AI coming in. And I'm looking at the clock and I'm knowing that you're a very busy man and you've got loads of podcasts and goodness knows what to do. Um, on a final question, Roy, and, and it is a serious question, um, because I do think that you and I, if we were put our brains together, there's a lot of common sense that we have to share. And I think the NHS lacks common sense at the moment um, and a bit of kindness and a bit of TLC, because we used to put that on the end of patients' charts at the end of their beds. The TLC, yeah. always tender, loving care. And I think my final question to you, Roy, before we finish, and I cannot thank you enough for joining us. And I really, really hope you'll agree to come back because it's just fascinating sure. talking to you. And I know that together we could we could make a difference because there's a lot more that I want to delve in with you in, in the future. So finally, do you think our me uh, your message to our viewers and listeners, I want to give you the final word and to say thank you again, but to leave the word with you, is the NHS a safe place to be? And thank you, Roy Lilly. Well, it's a big question, and thank you. Before I answer it, just let me say thank you. I mean, I've really enjoyed having a sort of wide-ranging conversation. So often I do, you know, news pieces or a bit on the telly or something, and the, the, the editor will say, me, you've got 90 seconds. Tell me what's wrong with the NHS. You know, <laughs> you can have a, a freak out trying to fit into the, into the three minutes between the adverts. So it's nice to be able to have a, a wide-ranging discussion. And yes, I, I'd love to come back. And, and if you don't invite me, I'm going to come knocking on your door. Say I'm back. So I will come back. But as far as the NHS is concerned, look, every day, 1.3 million good-hearted, highly trained, very motivated vocational people come to work to do the best they can in some very difficult circumstances. Today, more than a million people will be looked after by the NHS. Will they all have a fantastic experience? No, you can't do a million of everything, of anything, get everything right. Um, but I can tell you that most people will come through the NHS today. They'll be enormously grateful. They'll be fixed up. They'll be go home with a bit of peace of mind. And, and I think they'll be very pleased with the experience that they've had. So I'd say keep faith with the NHS. Please keep faith with it. It's going through a difficult time. It's there to support you. But we need to have we need to support it as well. So it, it's a job for us both. Keep the faith.